You're listening to True Vine Church Community Podcast. We hope this message sparks and sustains revival with your relationship with Jesus. For more information about True Vine, visit truevinephiladelphia.com. Kids are making their way down for Children's Church. I want to remind you that today we're starting a new sermon series uh, called The Story of the Bible. This series is going to take this entire year, all of 2023, at least that's what I'm saying now. Uh, But that's the plan, is that this series will take us through the whole year. We're going to look at 30 key stories and 10 key themes in the Bible this year. Uh, So some of the ones that you thought you learned in children's church or uh, Bible school when you were a kid, we're going to revisit some of those. We're also going to talk about some stories that maybe you're unfamiliar with so that we can understand the arc of the entire Bible. If we're going to spend an entire year looking at the content in the pages of the Bible, if we're going to do that, We need to establish something first, which is, what even is the Bible? What is the Bible? Why do we as Christians keep going back to this old book? I don't know if you've ever read the Bible. It's long. It's long. There's some stuff in it that's hard to understand. There's some words in it that we don't normally use. I mean, it's it was not written in Philadelphia in 2023. This thing was written by people who had a totally different view of the world, totally different way of living and thinking and operating. It was written by 40 different people over the course of a thousand years, which means that many of the authors of the Bible never even met each other. They, they came from different walks of life. There were kings and there were slaves. There were educated people and there were uneducated people. I mean, like just like coming from all different places. There were people that lived in bondage and other people that lived in slavery. Some of them were poets. Others were warriors. There's one guy that's a poet and a warrior. I mean, it's, it is a collection of writings. So what is the Bible? This is the best way for me to explain it to you, and I want to talk to you about the two fattest books that I owned in college. This, these were not theology books, these were literature books. There was a two-volume set, and if you can throw it up there, the Norton Anthology of American Literature. Okay, so in college, I had to buy these two books. Uh, if you went to college and had to buy books, I was the kind of guy that bought a book and then sold it back afterwards. I was not keeping big old chunky Johns like this around, okay? The Norton Anthology of American Literature, first of all, you don't have to remember this. Okay, this is short-term memory information right now, not long-term memory information. The Norton Anthology of American Literature was this two-volume set. It was two books. It was fat. It took up this much space on my bookshelf, just these two books. Volume one, or volume A, this is all, it's all writings from America, okay? Volume A was from what's called the beginning to 1820, Volume B was 1820 to 1865. Here's what was in volume A, just a summary. I got out the old uh, table of contents and refreshed my memory. The first book, which covered the beginning to 1820, had this, Navajo and Iroquois creation stories. The way that they thought the earth was created, their writings were included in here. There were letters from Christopher Columbus, There were historical accounts of exploring expeditions. These accounts were called chronicles. 
There were poems from the Bay Psalm book. The Bay Psalm book was a translation of the book of Psalms into the English they spoke at the time for Puritans to use, and it was set to song for them to sing. There was commentary on the differences between the English and Native American languages. There was a diary of a judge named Samuel Seawall. So there's literally a book about the life of a judge in here, or a diary. There were accounts of slaves that were brought from Africa and what it was like for them as they were on the ships. There are sermons from Jonathan Edwards during the First Great Awakening. There were the writings of Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Jefferson. One of the writings of Benjamin Franklin that's included in this book is a short little, you could read it in 10 minutes, book called The Way of Wealth. It's full of little sayings, little adages, little proverbial comments. Um, So for instance, have you ever heard early to bed and early to rise, healthy, wealthy, and wise. That's in that book. He also said, a small leak will sink a great ship. So the, the whole book from Benjamin Franklin is little sayings that are wise. Um, there are letters between John and Abigail Adams. Rip Van Winkle is in this book. The Legend of Sleepy Hollow is in this book. That's volume one. Volume two picks up in 1820. It has various poems, speeches, letters, and stories. It's got poems from Edgar Allan Poe, Walt Whitman, and Emily Dickinson. There are speeches from Abraham Lincoln. I don't know if you noticed we're crossing genres here. We've got everything from Rip Van Winkle to history to speeches to poems to songs Volume B has prose from Harriet Beecher Stowe and Frederick Douglass, and also a portion of Moby Dick by Herman Melville. All in these two books. This is called an anthology. When you collect different writings from different people, from different genres, from different times, you put them all together to give you a snapshot of what life was like at that time for those people. So let me review this. I want to see if, you, if this sounds familiar. It's a two-volume set. Part one is longer than part two. Part one includes stories of creation, historical books called Chronicles, a book of Psalms, a book of wise sayings, and a diary about a judge. There's a book of a judge. Does any of this sound familiar to you? Sermons from a preacher, almost like a prophet, named Jonathan Edwards. There's a collection of love letters between a man and a woman named John and Abigail Adams. Like a song of songs. You see the connection that I'm making? This anthology of American literature is actually pretty similar to the Bible. You know why that is? Because the Bible is an anthology. It's not an American anthology. It is the inspired anthology of God. It's a collection of writings from different people and different times, from different genres. But if you read the whole thing, you start to get a picture of what their way of life was like and how they understood God. What makes the Bible different from the Norton American Anthology of Literature is that the Bible is inspired. The Bible's source is God, 
not humankind, not humanity, not man. So the Bible, I'm calling the Bible <coughs> the, <coughs> excuse me, I'm calling the Bible the inspired anthology of God. You may have heard it said that the Bible is a love letter. I'm sorry to ruin your day. The Bible is not a love letter. The Bible is not a history book. The Bible is a collection of writings that includes everything from love letters to history books. But it, it is an anthology. I, I was telling my wife this yesterday. I can't believe this isn't taught more because it seems so obvious to me. Because as soon as you say that the Bible is this or that, you're kind of limiting it. But when we say it's an anthology, we are recognizing the multifaceted nature of the Bible. The Bible Project defines the Bible, and this is a helpful, I think, helpful, simple definition. The Bible Project defines the Bible as a unified story that leads to Jesus. It utilizes poetry, it utilizes history, it utilizes proverbs, it utilizes chronicles, it utilizes parables and imagery and prophetic literature utilizes all these ways to tell a unified story and that Jesus is the center of it. So the first thing that we want to do before we head into a year-long study of the Bible is understand that it is our source. It is reliable. If you uh, were going to follow a recipe, before you went and followed the recipe, you would want to know that the recipe was reliable, right? Like the measurements are correct, the ingredients are not a joke. If you're going to follow a map to get somewhere, you would want to know that the map is reliable, that north is north and south is south, that the measurements are accurate. You would want to know if you're going to spend a lot of time and energy and resources and dedicate your life to something, you want to know that the source is reliable. So today, I want to talk to you about why we can trust the Bible, and we're going to look at how the Bible is inspired, true, and authoritative. But I'm going to say this. The Bible is true because it is inspired. The Bible is authoritative because it is inspired. It all roots back to the inspiration of Scripture. That is the starting point. The fact that the Bible is true is a consequence of its inspiration. The fact that the Bible has authority is a consequence of its inspiration. Once you take away the inspiration of the Bible... You just have an old book. So let me start with this summary. Um, it's a kind of an explanation of what the Bible is. This is the statement that our denomination, we're part of a denomination called the Christian and Missionary Alliance. And uh, we, as, long, as well as 2,000 other churches in the United States, have this belief about the Bible. The Old and New Testaments, inerrant as originally given, we're verbally inspired by God and are a complete revelation of his will for the salvation of men. Now, we're changing that to say men and women. But 50 years ago when that was written, everyone knew what it meant, but we're, we're updating that. We're in an eight-year-long process to change that word. They constitute the divine and only rule of Christian faith and practice. So the Old and New Testaments, and there as originally given, were verbally inspired by God and are a complete revelation for of his will for the salvation of mankind or humanity. They constitute the divine and only rule of Christian faith and practice. So I'm not going to preach this statement today, but I am going to preach the Bible, and by the end of the day, you will understand why we say what we say about the Bible. We're going to start in 2 Timothy chapter 3. Verses 16 through 17, these two verses, very simple, but may be very familiar to you. 
Um, so 2 Timothy three sixteen through 17 says, all scripture is inspired by God and beneficial for teaching, for rebuke, for correction, and for training in righteousness, so that a man or woman of God may be fully capable, equipped for every good work. How, how many of you have heard that passage before? God's word is uh, inspired. It's, it's, it, you might have re- heard it say, all scripture is God-breathed. Okay, that word inspired there in Greek is theopneustos. It means literally, just transliterated, God breathed. God breathed the Bible into human authors <clears throat> who wrote it down and preserved it. God inspired the Bible. Did you know that in order to speak, you need to be able to breathe? You, you have to have air coming out of your lungs, through your vocal cords, in order to produce sound, in order to breathe or to sing, which is why if you sing, you can only carry a note for so long. That's why if you're on the phone while you're walking up and down the stairs over and over and you got out of breath, you got to take a minute if you're talking while exercising or something like that. Uh, it's why if you're a public speaker, you have to time your breaths and sometimes you have to slow down so that you can breathe because without breath, you cannot speak. The breath behind the Bible came from God. He's the one that breathed out. The Bible was God's idea, and the Bible is God's ideas. It is the way God sees the world. It is the truth. Uh, It's truth from God's perspective, which is truth. It's not like his opinion. It's reality. So the Bible is inspired by God, Yet it is written by humankind. I'll get to that in a moment. The inspiration of the Bible, the fact that it came from God, this is why we say that the Bible has authority. Not because it's older than us, most of us. We don't, the Bible's not authoritative because it's old. The Bible's not authoritative because it's wrapped in leather. The Bible's not authoritative because it's got shiny pages. The Bible's not authoritative because it sounds like Shakespeare. The Bible's authoritative because the source is God. Does that make sense? That's why we would say the Bible has authority. That's why we would say that the Bible is true. If I have an argument between myself and the Bible, I know that I'm inevitably going to lose that. There was a man named Augustine uh, who said, um, I'm paraphrasing here, if I'm reading scripture and I find that there's something that I don't understand or dislike, I know that the issue is either with the translation or the commentaries or me, but the issue is never with God or his word. The problem is always with me or there's a translation issue or the books I'm reading to help me understand it are the issue. The issue is never with God or his word. That was his way of saying the Bible has authority, not me. So the the Bible is inspired, which gives it authority. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 through 21 say something very similar. 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21 say, Know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture becomes a matter of someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. That last phrase is the key. Moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Uh, those that wrote the Bible, the 40 or so authors, were carried along by the Holy Spirit as they wrote. 
I personally do not think they went into a trance. Um, one of the things you'll find as you read is like the way the apostle Paul wrote sounds like Paul. The way that Peter wrote sounds like Peter. The way that John wrote sounds like John. They all kind of have their same, uh, sorry, they all kind of have their own unique different personalities. Sometimes they use terms differently. So just because Paul used the word this word one way doesn't mean Peter necessarily used it that way. Their individual personalities still come through, yet the same Holy Spirit carried each one of them through in the writing. Also, something I want to point out, just a practical thing from verse 20. No prophecy of Scripture becomes a matter of someone's own interpretation. You are not privileged to have your own personal interpretation of scripture. There's one interpretation. You know, you can have a different application. You might respond differently, but at the interpretation, there's, there's one, just like any other piece of writing, there's only one correct interpretation. Now, there might be different applications. So if I sent a letter to my wife and a thousand years from now, someone got that letter, and they started studying it and reading it like, oh, I interpret this letter to mean this one thing. Oh, I interpret it to mean something else. I interpret it to mean something else. No, there's only one interpretation, right? There's whatever the intent that I had as the original author was trying to communicate to my wife, that's the interpretation. So there's one correct interpretation. So I say that because... I. Here's how it comes across usually. What does the Bible mean to me? If you're talking about application, that's fine. But let's not pretend that all interpretations are equally valid. They're not. The Bible's not... It said right there in verse 21, it's, uh, verse 20, it's not a matter of each individual's own interpretation. Whatever God meant is what he still means to this day. Now, you might apply it differently. It may have different implications for one person that it has for another person. You know, there are passages about marriage that have a different application for single people than they have for married people. There are passages about raising children that might mean uh, application for parents that it doesn't mean for people that don't have kids. There, there are different applications. That's where the each one of us has freedom to apply Scripture in ways that are appropriate, but... Uh, there's one interpretation, and it's the interpretation that honors God's original intent in writing Scripture. Okay, I can tell that you're loving this so far. All right. So, as verse uh, 20 of First Peter says, no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. The Bible was inspired by God, but it was written by human beings. Okay, let's, God did not write the Bible. I know that we say that all the time. It's kind of a shorthand way of saying that the Bible's inspired. But I think a lot of people get confused when they think God wrote the Bible. Then why does Paul sound different from John, who sounds different from Peter, who sounds different from Moses? Well, you know, what's with all these differences? God did not write the Bible. Aside from the Ten Commandments... He didn't carve anything in stone with his finger. Human beings wrote the Bible. 
God inspired it. Now, some people, when they learn this, this rocks their faith. I remember people hearing this like, wait, the Bible was written by humans? Yeah, it was. It was written by humans. It's, but that's not what makes the Bible unique. What makes it unique is that it was inspired by God. So people will tell you, people will say this to you, you can't trust the Bible because it was written by humans. And I always think, just wait till they find out who wrote your science textbooks. Also humans. Wait till they find out who wrote your history books. Also humans. If we're saying, you can't trust this, it's written by humans, then we can't trust anything. Right? The issue, then, is not who wrote it, it's who inspired it. Science and history are both written and inspired by men. Scripture is written by men, but inspired by God. That's what makes it different. Does that make sense? So, I also say, the fact that it's written down by human beings doesn't prevent it from being true. I don't know if you guys know this, but human beings are capable of telling the truth, right? I want to say something controversial. Water is wet. Is that wrong because I'm a human being? No, is the correct answer. That was not a rhetorical question, but okay. This is not a philosophy class. We do, have the, we do have the capacity to report things correctly, especially if the Holy Spirit is aiding and guiding in the process. So, because the Bible is inspired, then the Bible is also true. <clears throat> if you could throw, uh, Aiden, if you could throw the slide up with the, uh, uh, that says, what is the Bible? Um, the Old and New Testaments one. Yes, thank you. Excellent job, young Aiden. Okay. The Old and New Testaments, inerrant as originally giving. That word inerrant is kind of a weird word. It, just, it means without error. It means the Bible does not say anything that is false. The Bible does not address everything. Folks, maybe you know this. The Bible does not address every topic, every issue um, that you and I might come across. It, it was written at a specific time. The Bible does not address everything, but what it does address, it addresses accurately. What it does address, it's not saying anything false and anything that it affirms. That's what the word inerrant means. It means it does not affirm anything that is false. Everything that it says is true. And there's a key phrase here. Uh, the Old and New Testaments, inerrant as originally given. I believe, and I think many of you believe, and we teach here, that the Bible was perfect when it was given to the original authors, Moses, Paul, and others. So it's in there in its original manuscripts, but that does not mean your translation of the Bible that you bought at Sam's Club is perfect. You understand what I'm saying? When, when Moses wrote it down, that was perfect. When Paul wrote it down, that was perfect. The translations can all have issues. You know what I'm saying? That's why there are so many translations, because everyone is trying to fix someone else's issue. Now we have thousands of Bible translations. Your, your Bible that you went and bought at a Christian bookstore or bought on Amazon or wherever you got it, or you have on your phone, it very well might have translation issues. Now, I'm going to tell you 
that your Bible, if you have a good translation, like the ones we use here, I recommend the New American Standard, the ESV, the uh, NIV, I even like the New Living Translation. There's other good ones, but those are the ones I use the most. If you're reading any of those, it's 99.9% accurate, and any questions you can just find by reading the footnotes. They're not trying to hide anything from you. I remember I showed somebody in a footnote once. It was like they'd been reading the Bible for years but never bothered to look at the little things in the bottom. I said, well, look, it's telling you right here that this word maybe should be translated some, some other way. And they had like a crisis of faith. They weren't sure Jesus was even real anymore. So I'm trying to tell you now, the Bible's not trying to trick you. For the most part, the translations are not trying to trick you. You just might have to read the footnotes to find out, hey, we have a question about this. Does that make sense? Okay. So when we say the Bible is perfect, we mean originally. When Moses wrote it, when Paul wrote it, when others wrote it. What we don't mean is the King James is perfect. What we don't mean is the New American Standard or the ESV or the NIV or the, any English translations are perfect. But I'll tell you this, and, and this, is, this is the primary thing I studied in my education, the way the Bible was translated and put together and organized, it's pretty flippin' accurate. There's no book that even comes close to the scrutiny that the Bible has undergone to be translated and organized correctly. No other book could even get close to the Bible. We have so many, do you know how many (laughs) ancient manuscripts there are of like Julius Caesar's writings? Like 10. And on those 10 manuscripts, we, uh, we base history. You know how many cop, uh, how many books there are about, um, Alexander the Great, just one. There's just one book about Alexander, ancient book about Alexander the Great. And from that one book, we base history. There are like 5,000 manuscripts just for the New Testament alone. We, we base history on a little sliver about Julius Caesar and Alexander the Great. No one questions that. We have 5,000 manuscripts for the New Testament. I mean, nothing... Uh, the, the, the next closest thing is the Iliad by Homer. And there's like a hundred copies. We have thousands. So New Testament is the most historically reliable document in human history. You don't even have to be a Christian to acknowledge that. It, it simply has the most manuscripts. It's the best preserved. Our ancient, our ancient manuscripts go back to like the generation after Jesus. I mean, they're, they're like right back to the uh, they're historically accurate is the point I'm trying to make. All right. Final thing that I want to get to, the Bible's authoritative. <clears throat> because it's inspired by God, the Bible carries God's authority. The Bible could be seen as a measuring stick against which we judge all beliefs and behaviors. Okay. You know how when you're measuring something, you need to maybe a, a measuring cup or a measuring stick to know is this too much or too little, something like that. Uh, or you might weigh yourself in the morning to know what your weight is. There's, there's a tool, something that you have to make measurements. The Bible is the measuring instrument for you to know whether a behavior is good or bad, whether an attitude in your heart is good or, good or bad. There's a Hebrew word for a measuring stick. You know, we, they didn't have, t- uh, 
They didn't have tape measures. They would just break a reed to get a reed out of the water, break it, and that's what they would use to measure stuff. The Hebrew word for that reed or rod was kana. We say canon. So the canon of Scripture, the measuring stick of Scripture, is the thing that judges our hearts and our minds and our attitudes. Uh, the writer of Hebrews actually says this in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. The writer of Hebrews says, The word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, even penetrating as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The word of God judges you. It judges your thoughts. It judges your motives. The things that you think, the Bible has the ability to say that's good or that's bad, that's right or that's wrong. It even has the ability to judge your motives. Why do you do what you do? Scripture is the measuring rod. That word judges is kritikos. It's the word we get critique from. The Bible critiques us. Now, I, I don't say this so that you have a bunch of shame and guilt. I say this to identify our need for Jesus. This is a Sermon on the Mount principle here. That unless our righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, we will not enter the kingdom of God. Okay, my righteousness doesn't surpass that of the Pharisees. I evidently need more help. Introduce Jesus. Right? That's where Jesus comes in. Is God's word critiques my thoughts, my motives, and my actions. And my attentions. Why I think what I think and why I do what I do. If I can go back to 1 Timothy, sorry, 2 Timothy 3.16, it says uh, all scripture is inspired by God and that it's useful for teaching, for rebuke, for correction, and training in righteousness. Here's, here, here's where the Bible really finds its, its use. It's useful for teaching. If you want to grow in your understanding of God, theology, doctrine, the Bible is the source for us. If you want to know how the world works, what truth is, what human beings are. The Bible is our source for that. We get our teaching from the Bible. That word uh, uh, rebuke uh, and correction has kind of two implications. One is for providing evidence for why we believe what we believe. The Bible is useful for providing evidence, but it's also helpful for correcting us when we are wrong. Our corrections of others should be based on, and I would even suggest limited to, Scripture. If you're going to confront someone, especially a believer, you better have a Bible verse to support that. Um, and if you don't, then maybe you shouldn't. Unless you're just having a personal conflict, like, hey, that thing you said hurt, or you didn't show up and you said, or something like that. But... If you're going to actually confront a person, you better have a Bible verse to back that up. If you don't have a Bible verse, maybe you need to question whether you need to have that conversation. But Scripture is the thing by which we gauge right behavior and wrong behavior. Finally, the Bible is useful for training in righteousness. So the Bible assesses our lifestyles, behaviors, actions, and choices. Now, okay, let me address some misunderstandings or misapplications here, because I realize I just went really hard on why we believe what we believe about the Bible. So I want to maybe get ahead of 
two errors that we often fall into. We get into this one error where the Bible's authoritative, that's true. So whoever, whoever happens to be holding the Bible or teaching the Bible or quoting the Bible, they must be right. And we confuse the authority of God's word with the authority of a spiritual leader or the authority of a church or the authority of a tradition. And we will say, well, well, how come women have to wear head coverings? How come women have to wear skirts? How come we do this? How come we meet on Sundays? How come we do this? How come we can't bring coffee in the sanctuary? How come we have all these traditions? And we treat those traditions almost like they are scripture. You know what I mean? Because, well, I don't know. The guy that said it was holding a Bible. The guy that said it is the Bible teacher, right? Or, so there's traditions. And I don't mean to step on any toes, but I just want to show you like where this really, really um, plays itself out. If you grew up in like the Roman Catholic Church, they have a different view on this. In their theology, the church has authority over scripture. Whereas we would believe scripture has authority over the church. So they would put tradition on par with the Bible. Pope is on par with the Bible. So of course, well, if the Pope and the priest are equal to the Bible, how could I question them? Right? If church tradition is equal to the Bible, how could I question it? Do you see how that could be a problem? And it creates an atmosphere where spiritual professionals can get away with whatever they want to get away with, and I know that's never happened. So the authority of Scripture does not mean the authority of the pastor. It does not mean the authority of the church or the authority of tradition. You know when a pastor has authority? When they're correctly interpreting the Bible. When does a church have authority? When they're correctly applying the Bible. When is a tradition valid? When it's rooted in Scripture. You understand what I'm saying? Like, all the authority we have comes from this. When does a husband have authority? When he's operating according to Scripture. Not just because of his gender, but because he's operating according to Scripture. That's, that's where we get our authority because that's where our... We get our authority from Scripture. Scripture gets its authority from the Bible. See how that chain flows? So... That's one of the errors that we can fall into is <clears throat> we take the authority of Scripture and we start applying it to other people. Listen, I, I, you have permission from Jesus to judge any tradition, church practice, or spiritual leader that does not measure up to the Bible. I don't mean judge in a condemning way. I just mean like to evaluate, to assess, to determine their reliability. If, the, if, there's a, if there's a spiritual leader that you're listening to and it's like, oh man, I, seems like they're incorrect according to scripture. Okay, scripture's not wrong. They are wrong, right? Don't, don't give them a free pass. Um, if there's something that happens at a church and it violates scripture, that's an issue. If there's a tradition that violates scripture, that's an issue. Okay, here's the next error, the final error that we can get into. I'm really not here to make you a bunch of Bible nerds. Um, uh, this can become one of those things 
where people will dig, they will dive deep into this, they will dig deep into this, and it'll become all intellectual. They'll read a ton of books, they'll learn a ton of words, and they'll just argue about it. They will love to argue about scripture. And they will be able to tell you all sorts of interesting historical tidbits, and they'll be able to break down language. And, and, but man, it really seems like they don't love God or people. That's actually part of the Pharisees' problem. Experts in the law, but not experts in love. They did not love other people. They actually so twisted scripture that they used it to the opposite of its intention. And that, that's a real issue, is when we use scripture as a bludgeoning tool, Hebrews 4.12 says God's word is living and active. It is sharper than a sword. But you can't turn it into a baseball bat. When God's word is accurately used, it is precise like a sword. It's a clean cut. We sometimes use it like a baseball bat to bludgeon people with. It's just kind of a blunt force trauma to the head and to the heart because we hit people with the Bible. When, when it's used correctly, it is precise and it cuts. You don't have to raise your voice. You don't have to force it down their throat. You can say it in a whisper through tears. If it's God word, it will pierce because it's a sword. Sometimes if it doesn't pierce, we just want to raise our voice a little bit. I don't, I'm not guilty of this ever, but you want to raise your voice like, oh, let me say it again because you just not heard it the first time. And we just keep repeating ourselves louder. That works. But you understand what I'm saying? His word pierces. It's, it's sharp like a sword. It gets to even, it's so precise, it says in Hebrews 4, it can get into the difference between uh, soul and spirit, joint and marrow. That's how precise it is. It can even make a distinction between your soul and your spirit. So, my goal here is not to create Bible nerds, it's to help people find God through Scripture. One last passage I want to read, it's just uh, one verse from John chapter 5. In John chapter 5, Jesus is arguing with the Pharisees as he was known to do. The Pharisees, basically, the Pharisees are saying, we don't, we don't believe you, Jesus. Why should we believe you? And Jesus says, well, I testify about myself, but I don't need to testify about myself. John the Baptist testifies me, but you guys reject John. It's, you know, it's like saying I have... I have an alibi. <laughs> I have witnesses. I have proof. John the Baptist is one of my witnesses. Uh, I am one of my own witnesses. But he, then he goes and he says, uh, he points to scripture as one of his witnesses. And he says, you examine the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is those very scriptures that testify about me, yet you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. This is the issue of the Pharisees. They thought that just the words on the page would give them spiritual life. It's like being 100 miles outside of Orlando and seeing a sign that says Disney World, 100 miles, and standing in front of the sign taking a picture like, what's up, y'all, at Disney World? No, it is simply a sign pointing you to Disney World. 
Scripture is a sign that points us to Jesus. It directs us to Jesus. I'm sure you know this, but maybe maybe you've never thought of it. You can stare at the words on the page and read them and still not be changed. That That happens all the time. You can read from cover to cover, and by the time you've closed it, you've forgotten everything in it. Nothing in here has changed. Nothing up here has changed. That's the problem that the Pharisees had. When you're reading scripture, you are not simply collecting facts. You are searching for Jesus. You you come to the scriptures so that you can find Jesus because as he said, you examine the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is those very scriptures that testify about me. That's why the Bible Project defines the Bible as a unified story that leads to Jesus. If you read the Bible and don't get to Jesus at some point, you're just not reading it right. It's like reading a map and not getting to your destination or reading a recipe for a cake and when you're done, it's a pie. You know, it's like, it's not quite right. You know, you, you miss the point. The point of the Bible is Jesus. The point of Genesis is Jesus. The point of Exodus is Jesus. Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy are all about Jesus. Now, I realize you know, he's kind of like a little harder to find in those, in those books. I understand that. He's pretty easy to find in the Gospels. So start there if you need to. But the point of Scripture is not so that you can become an annoying religious, religious scholar. Nobody likes that. Nobody likes those people. The point of scripture is to find Jesus. So however you personally read scripture, I just want to encourage you, it better be to find Jesus. However you are encouraging other people to read scripture, it better be to help them find Jesus. In a moment, I'm going to have Pastor John Eric come up and uh, wrap us up and send us home. But I just, please don't adopt a method of engaging with scripture. I don't care if it's every day or once a week or whatever. Please don't adopt a method that puffs you up and makes you pompous and arrogant. If, if you feel that coming in your heart, you need to pump the brakes real fast and ask yourself, where am I finding Jesus in this passage? Where am I finding Jesus in this book? Where am I find, finding Jesus in this story? That will actually help you understand all of scripture. I want to give you a heads up as uh, John Eric makes his way up here. Um, we have updated in the Church Center app uh, some resources for this sermon series. So if you are in the Church Center app or on our church website, you'll see the story of the Bible graphic. If you click on that, every week we're going to update it with resources that will help you kind of go deeper with what we're studying on Sunday morning. So for instance, this week, all of the passages that I preached were loaded into there as well as three YouTube videos that you could watch. Each one was like five minutes or less that you could watch. You could watch them in advance of the sermon to prepare you, or you could watch them after the sermon as a refresher. But every week, we're going to provide you with some additional resources. Sometimes it'll be blogs to read. Sometimes it'll be videos. It might be a sermon. This, uh, a lot of the passages we're going to study will be made available in advance. But I just want to, that's something you will have that you're, Pastors and elders, we're providing trustworthy resources for you to go a little deeper with, okay? All right, Pastor John Eric.